0: Why, good evening, everyone. Getting settled here. Uh, oh boy, I sure hope it is a uh, a nicer day wherever you are than it is here. I just came in from mowing lawns and uh, and sweating like crazy here. Boy, pushing about ninety for the first time here in upstate New York. I know for some of you, you live in places where that's uh, that's more normal, and uh, you know you're acclimated to that and all. But boy, I tell you, up here we certainly aren't. I uh, wasn't really prepared for that. Anyhow, uh, glad to be here, church history, and uh, looking into uh, tonight some of the church's reactions to modernity. That probably sounds like a very, oh, intimidating title, but it really isn't. Uh, there is a lot of reactions to modernity. Uh, we're going to focus on some of the massive ones and uh, and make some connections that usually aren't made. So, uh if you have some interest in some of the issues of liberal theology or even some of the reactions into conservative theology, which has been you know uh, traditionally known or called fundamentalism, um this is going to be a good one for you to look at if you're more interested in some of the more pietistic ways that people responded to you know the headiness of modernity, uh, we're going to focus as well a little bit on the holiness movements and the beginning of Pentecostalism. Um, We will have later uh, episodes on Pentecostalism and uh, and kind of the development of the charismatic movements uh, in the 20th century at a later date. But just to understand that right around the turn of the century, we're dealing with all of these things kind of coming together and uh, a lot of the reactions to it and um, and the effects of it. So really, uh, really important to do so. Uh, Larry asked, replacing the gospels with politics here. Um, not sure exactly what you mean, if you can clarify your question, but, um, to, to express, uh, when we talk about liberal theology or conservative theology, we're not talking about the political movements of the 20th century yet. Uh, we're talking about the theological movements, uh, of the 19th and early 20th century. Uh, so this has to do in the area of church history and theology itself. Um, so I hope that helps and clarifies a bit. Um, so let's go into this. Now, most of the time when we talk about modernity, um, because we're talking about a philosophical concept, um, because we're talking about a philosophical concept, uh, we're not usually using terminology like this in church. Um, and, and the expressions about how the church reacts to, um, modernity and how it interacts with philosophy, really becomes one of the most uh, significant changes of the past couple hundred years. We're about to go through a whole nother one uh, and that is the church's reactions to postmodernity, which we will address here in the coming months. Um, but, uh, but first before we really get into all of this, let's kind of talk about modernity and then we can address how the responses to this uh, works. Uh, liberal theology, for instance, liberal theology, uh, accepted modernity uh, on on uh, as a whole, at least a lot of the uh, concepts about this um, with regards to how it works um, on the philosophical side and then it can be imported directly onto the theological side of things. Um, when we are discussing uh, when we are discussing the the issues of uh, modernity and how it thinks and how it addresses topics, um again, we're dealing with a lot of the responses to the, the radical enlightenment, uh the, the concepts of the rise of the scientific revolutions, um, you know, the the fronting more of the human experience and the human perspective, uh, even over that of revelation and the the expression of of how God interacts with the world. And so uh the rise of scientific uh rationalism and uh especially with the the throwing off of any Uh, Christian understanding of things uh, in the in the radical enlightenment, um, modernist philosophy really brought into the world this idea that perhaps we can live without God. You know, we can't live without a creator. And that's why I like our a lot of our founding documents in the U.S. have to do with this uh, concept that all of us were created and are endowed by a creator with certain inalienable rights. But modernity will leave God at creator. And then try to establish further on um, his relationship with uh, the world as being distant, and so you will find a lot of challenges in modernist philosophy will uh, look down on concepts like miracles or rash uh, or um, revelation or inspiration, uh, the deity of Christ, and all sorts of things. Um, liberal theology in the late nineteenth century will accept a lot of this directly into. Uh, and try to turn it into a version of Christianity. Now, when I say version of Christianity, uh, I hope you don't necessarily hear uh, uh, denigration. Um, A a lot that were attempting to do this did not have uh, a goal of destruction, though that was the effect in a lot of places. Uh, A lot that were attempting to do this uh, we're trying to bring together faith and reason, kind of that uh, that perennial frustration. Trying to bring together faith and reason uh, in a way that would actually work for the church, and uh, a lot of it really came from a cultural mindset of progressivism. If we continue along this trajectory, perhaps we can bring uh, perhaps we can bring um, uh, the scientific revolution into the church, and we can progress into the future with this uh this concept that it ends up that way um uh that like for instance in the earliest of the scientific revolutions in modernity uh we could actually prep the world for the re- return of jesus um but that uh that really doesn't uh that really doesn't uh uh, as we see, work very well when we when we get into it. We'll see the responses of that. Uh, Larry, you posted a couple other things here. Uh, so liberal though, uh, a liberal would not be uh, in keeping with the terminology of 19th century liberalism. There for that uh, question here, uh, and <laughs> I'm not going to be talking about white Christian nationalism. That really doesn't have anything to do with the church's reaction to modernity. I will say um that does have a whole lot to do with uh some of the postmodernist movements in theology. We'll talk about some of that at a later date. Um uh, but not tonight. Uh we'll talk about these. Uh so uh modernity as a whole is trying to address how the world itself actually functions. You know, is is God actually involved in the smallest things? Is God involved in uh in this kind of uh concept of of sovereignty and of uh, engaging the, the affairs of the world, or is he fully removed from this and the natural world just goes along its own? Um, and so you will see a rise of this, not only in areas of theology and philosophy, but you'll see a lot of rises of this in areas of economics and geology and biology uh, and and even of, if, even of sociology. And so you'll see a lot of things, uh, a lot of names that'll start to creep up into this that um, that come out of this kind of philosophy of progressivism, this progressive idea about um, okay, um, so this kind of progressive idea uh, about history itself and how it works, um, you'll get this idea that you know from the ancient world through the medieval through the modernist world that we're on this kind of idea of of progressivism going forward. Um, and that there's there's a concept to all of this stuff that some people will look at and say um that there's there's an expressive way in which history moves forward towards an end goal. Now, for liberal theologians, this will be uh this will be on the side of uh, of insisting that the the end goal will be the uh, whatever version of eschatology that would hold to. um, the earliest parts of that would hold to the return of Christ, very similar to a lot of uh, other thinkers in the 19th century. Um, but when, when we're dealing with uh, progressivism as a whole, uh, it's it's interesting for us to address that the way that humanity looks at itself really becomes quite important. Um, and in modernity, we're going to see that kind of, uh, kind of explode onto the stage. Um, so let's kind of go into this. liberal theology will uh, accept a lot of this concept of modernity and modernism and the scientific revolution directly into its theology, and what are the effects of that um, so let's look at liberal theology for a second. Uh, most of the movement of the liberal uh, uh, liberalism and liberal theology is traced back to the nineteenth century, the eighteen hundreds um, where there becomes a very widespread disagreement over the very definition of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, it's kind of difficult, right? Because you have the rise of so many different disparate uh, groups, disparate uh, religious groups. And uh, and even on top of that, you have so many different claims of Christianity itself with a rise of multiple denominations trying to live side by side in the United States. Uh, you have a very difficult understanding of how to define what is a Christian. Uh, you know, for instance, you can have uh, people of such different concepts of how Christianity works trying to function next to each other. And yeah, we can build a church down the street and this will be uh, the Methodist church. This will be the Baptist church. This will be the Presbyterian church. This will be the Congregationalist church. And, you know, we're all Christians, right? And how how do we draw the lines? Now, some people will draw the lines at their denomination. And uh, that gets really dicey pretty quick, Um And I I think plainly not a proper way to do that. Um, But then there's others who try to open it up with ecumenicalism and, and expand out the border as wide as we possibly can. But there's not a stark difference anywhere where you can say if you believe this or if you believe that you are or are not a Christian. Because the reality is Christians hold all sorts of different views about all sorts of different things. And so when a huge challenge to theology comes up that challenges the core assumptions of the Christian faith, it's very, very hard to start drawing lines because not everybody is on one side or the other. People are not just extremes. People are mixtures uh, of beliefs and mixtures of, of concepts and, and what they've been able to piece together through what they've read or what they've seen or what they appeal to. And this becomes really difficult. Um, but a lot of what happens in the liberal theology, really, it helps to discuss it more from the goal in mind. Uh, liberal theology or liberalism, if you're taking notes, is more well-defined as a movement of people in the church that wanted to reground the doctrines of the church in science, logic, social justice, and progressive thinking. I'll read that again. The, uh, it, liberalism or liberal theology in the 19th century was a movement of people in the church that wanted to reground the doctrines of the church. They wanted to re foundation, reground the doctrines of the church in a multiplicity of things science, logic, social justice, and progressive thinking. Um, that's, that's an important list because, again, each of those has to do with the focus of theology and the focus of the ground of the doctrines of the church have to do with the human condition. Science, the the uh, the uh, the testing, the hypothesizing, the theorizing, the conclusion. This these works of humans, uh, and then also logic, the thoughts of humans. The same kind of way that science works in the physical world, logic works in the in the mental world, supposedly, and social justice. This is now extending past just the individual to the societal uh, societal justice, and then also progressive thinking. This idea of of just progressivism, we're we're going to a place, uh, whether or not the world ends in two hundred years or whatnot. It's the idea that tomorrow is brighter than today, and uh, all of this scientific revolution is a positive thing, both for culture and it's a positive thing for theology too. It's got to be a positive thing because look at all the good stuff it's doing. It's making us wealthier. Uh, it's inventing more ways to travel, inventing more ways to alleviate work. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it really is getting back to, for the first time in history, you know, the, the sweat of the brow and the, and the blood of the fingers uh, in, in carrying out the manual labor that it takes to live is now all of a sudden able to be set aside for, you know, a, a, a device to do it a machine to do it on your behalf. That kind of pull of the progressive view of history is a hard one to resist. Uh, in addition to this, you don't just have it happening in the, in the uh, scientific or in the economic world, you have it happening in all sorts of different ways of interacting with the world. And so when this kind of thinking is brought into Christian theology, and that is exactly how it happened, you had Christian theology, and then you brought... Modernism into it and attempted to reground our doctrines in a uh, testable, definable, uh, humanistic point of view um, in order to appeal to the modern mindset. What was the effect? Well, the effect is that there was many core doctrines that had to be overthrown. And this is, this is kind of the nature of how this will happen. Uh, it will change a lot of the f- core assumptions. And, and if a liberal theologian was here teaching the same thing, and I can speak to this, I had liberal theologian uh, uh, teaching me in, in seminary, uh, would say this exact thing, that we are um, establishing the Christianity of the future. It's not that we're trying to maintain fealty to the past uh, in any specific way. but we're trying, to, we're trying to forge ahead the way of the future. Now that may or may not be the case, uh, as far as for what the goal is, but the reality is that it did set a completely different future for those who would hold to this. Uh, and, and you say, well, what, what effect would it be? Uh, you know, if we make, you know, shouldn't it be an okay thing to make, you know, scientific progressivism or, um, or definable realities or human centric, um, uh, conclusions, the grounding of Christian doctrine. The problem is this, and, and here's where we really run into some of the problems that, that Christianity has never spoken in terms like that. Catholic, um, uh, Protestant, Orthodox, medieval, ancient, Nicene, post-Nicene, Antinician. nobody has talked about doctrines like this In any way like this ever in the past. And so there's really no way to just fit it in. You cannot just walk up to the creation of the world and say, well, I need to be able to prove this in a lab, or I need to be able to prove this by the laws of logic, or I need to be able to prove it with the laws of naturalistic materialism. You're not going to be able to do that. It's kind of the the special thing about Revelation is God says something that we really cannot argue with has been the historical christian answer to this kind of stuff and liberal theology will come in and and in its extremes will will express if we cannot prove it or if it is not the norm of the naturalistic world then we can't hold to it as christians and so you know that that will challenge when i say core doctrines I mean challenging core doctrines like the inspiration of scripture, because that is a miracle, uh, the miracles of Christ, because those are miracles, or of the prophets, or of prophecy, the ability for God to know the future, it doesn't work like that in liberal theology, or of the ability to, uh, to declare anything about uh, Jesus that would be deity. God does not enter his creation in liberal theology, because that would break the natural laws of the universe. You know, so then you have to throw out the virgin birth. You have to throw out the inspiration of scripture. You have to throw out the deity of Christ. It's going to start pulling away just about everything. By the way, resurrection itself is going to have to be pulled off uh, because that does not happen. Uh, We don't view that. We can't test that. It's not verifiable. And so you get a lot of these things come in and just start dismantling a lot of the core foundations Of what has been historically Christianity. Now, there are some who will say that this is just another version of Christianity. Uh, I am not one of those who holds to that, but I'm going to teach it, though, as it is, because I want to give at least uh, some uh, testament to uh, that there were Christians who were trying to do this with good intention. So, and I'm not going to call down on saying, you know, your philosophy. You know, determines whether you're a Christian or not that would also violate my uh, my understandings of of what it takes to be a Christian uh, but I will say that this caused a great deal of harm to the historical understanding of what it means to be a Christian um, and it really it really changed the way in which the church saw its role in the world if society is on an unending quest of progression that's and then we see that as a good thing. Then it really would be the church's job to join that progression wherever society goes. And so, if we're looking at uh, this, can you say in an odd way, it makes me think of the Gnostics. Oh, that's a good connection. See, this is this is the thing that a lot of you're exactly right, by the way. And um, a lot of the a lot of the earliest parts of the Radical Enlightenment were charged with that exact issue. Uh, that you're speaking of the inner light, and they would write of themselves in this manner. Uh, so here, uh, nerd sidebar for 60 seconds, since Ken brought this up. Um, in the in the earliest parts of the radical enlightenment, and even in the into the enlightenment, there was this understanding of the inner light. They said of the Quakers, they called the Holy Spirit. Right? Well a lot of those in the radical enlightenment would look at this and say, actually the inner light of man is not the Holy spirit. It's not the spark of the divine that the Quakers put forward. The inner light is reason. Now that's this, that, 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 that thinking goes straight back to Gnosticism. You're exactly right, Ken. Uh, And so a lot of this will be trying to bring a, a, a version of naturalistic Gnosticism, which is strange because Gnosticism is all about the spiritual, but the way Gnostics interacted in the physical world had much to do, also, with the effects of modernity, uh, and there were those who tried to bring this straight into Christianity. And you know, again, I Gnosticism is not the oldest heresy in the church, but boy, it is the longest lasting. And man, does it show up over and over and over again. It's showing up a lot today as well. Uh, we'll get to that when we talk um, in in the later sections about. Uh, transgenderism and and things like this and how the church is trying to react to this. You know, the idea that I am not what my physical self is. I'm what my spiritual concept of myself is. Um, That's just Gnosticism showing up again, but yes, in liberalism, you'll see the earth side of Gnosticism, not the spiritual side because they'll kind of throw all that off. Uh, But this great divide, this great uh, dualism, Uh, the difference will be that while they see this kind of dualistic idea they will almost eschew the spiritual as as, you know, unaffecting anything right now and ground themselves entirely in into the effects of uh, of this dualistic concept. And so um, it will uh, it will confuse so many areas of theology, because if you cannot allow for miracles and if you cannot allow for um, the divine to interject into his own creation, uh, you are now left with the scriptures are just a human retelling of what people thought of God, and I have had people that would talk about it this way to me. Um, you know that 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 way of thinking about things is going to make you look at the scriptures very differently. So when the scriptures say do this, do this, do this, and that disagrees with your culture, your progressive concept of history, or whatever the case may be, you don't have any problem throwing that off or, or calling Paul a chauvinistic you know, pig or something like this and just dismissing what scripture says because, well, it doesn't match with the progression of history right now. Um, now, in some ways, this uh, kind of helps because people have really deep conversations now about stuff we've never really had a lot of conversations about. Um, but it will really bring into the, the concept of Christians, what, what is actually our role in the world, and who are we anyway? How do we interact with all of this kind of stuff? Um, you, will get, uh, you will get some who will just go so far into this um, in, in the later years, people like Rauschenbusch, for instance, if you want to look into him a bit, uh, who wrote a book called Christianity and Social Crisis, he argued that individual salvation and repentance from sin and things like this are not really the focus of Christianity at all, that uh, that, that has been kind of hijacked. Uh, but salvation kind of comes to the collective whole. Um, you know, social justice is, and, and salvation is found in the elevation of the poverty-stricken. You know, questions of atonement, questions of the Trinity, not really the focus here. You know, um, rather a focus on social justice and uh, in some ways, in the later years, the overthrowing of historical Christian thought almost entirely. And th- it's it's hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around it a little bit. But the reality is that this was the cultural air of the 19th century. The idea that there is an unmatched, unending progression of history that sits in front of us. Uh, and that's that's hard not to imagine. The Industrial Revolution was going on. Um, so many different things had happened as far as culture was concerned. uh there was a lot of people that are starting to argue that we were actually beyond war that we were at a place where you know we're just having these little skirmishes and then we'll then we'll be done with it all um and uh And the turn of the century uh brought a number of different challenges to to this progressive idea of history and of theology um but in the midst of all of that, you had yet another response to the nature of modernism and how it interacts with the church, and that I'm going to show as and discuss as the holiness movements. So we got liberal theology being modernism should come straight into the church uh, and into our theology, and that you know leads to progressive uh, theology and so forth. but then you got the holiness movements now. A lot of this will be in reaction to modernity, but it'll also be in reaction to liberal theology. And it will also be in reaction to the very concept of modern uh, modernity, the scientific revolution, and even liberal theology as being uh, very scholastic and heady. Right. Uh, You know, there was a, there was not a lot of people that were looking at this and going, that, that's going to be our ultimate good, right? We're just going to read what all of the theological eggheads have to write and everything's going to be better. Don't forget, America at this time had a huge history with pietism. And, uh, and if you don't know what pietism off the top of your head, um, go back to our entire uh, uh, episode on pietism and remind yourself of a lot of this. Um, this This concept of an inner renewal of life and uh, and and things like this, and so you will see people uh, leaving a lot of these more progressive denominations for more holiness movements, restoration movements, even Quakers had a resurgence at this time as well um, you know they will they will look at all of this and say you know the the head the mind, the scientific revolution these things aren 't going to bring us you know, new life. It's not going to make us more pious. It's not going to make us have this deep connection with God and with grace. And instead, maybe we should just look at, um, maybe we should just look at our piety. Maybe we should just look at our own holiness, um, and, and express the, the effect of God and how we can know that we belong to God is through our piety, through our good works. Um, the the resurgence of the holiness movements uh, will will really at the end of the 19th century come to define a number of denominations, but the one massive one that it comes out of is Methodism. Um, the the first holiness movements all are grounded in Methodism, and again, Methodism uh, hugely saturated with Pietism in the in the late 19th century, and so it wouldn't make uh, wouldn't make any of us confused too much that it would certainly ground a lot of this in that. Liberal theology had emphasized human reason, uh, a critical approach to scripture, and a societal ethic, ethic over and, a, and sometimes against personal piety. But the Holy Miss movements will go the exact opposite extreme. they will be more about personal piety, a literal interpretation of the scriptures, and when I say literal, I mean literal, uh, and religious experience and conversion, right? Uh, you know, a, a come to Jesus kind of moment. You know this kind of idea that if you can't look back in your past and remember this this extreme experience of conversion that you know something's wrong you know there there has to be this this emotional um, built uh, response into your conversion and not only your conversion but the holiness movements will develop that even further and and say that there's there's actually. Um, a, a concept of a second act of grace. this is huge in the holiness mo- uh, movement uh, movements, plural um you know and and often it's referred to this idea of complete sanctification um or or in uh, parlance uh, Christian perfectionism you know the idea that we would as Christians in a second act of grace that's separate from salvation um, we would reach a moment in our lives where, we should be completely devoid of sin. Now, you may look at that, and if you're not from holiness movements or some of these restoration movements, uh, you may look at that with a bit of, you know, have you ever lived as a Christian and figured this out? That, that doesn't really comport with reality. Um, it's going to be really hard to answer back to that sometimes. It's kind of hard for somebody to come up to you and say, I have experienced this thing that has led me to a state of sinlessness. Haven't you experienced that? And then you answer back and go, well, no. And they say, well, are you okay with sin? Are you okay with it? Well, I'll pray for you that, you know, you will, you will achieve unto the same thing that I have. Uh, it's, it's a very, the same kind of elitism that exists in liberal theology with regards to uh, people that don't think very well. Uh, in the holiness movements, you will have an exact replica of that in those who supposedly don't feel very well. Those who don't have an emotionalistic uh, religious response to Christ or do not appeal to the emotional uh, concept of, you know, I, I have this this deep abiding personal relationship with Jesus Christ that's that's just as a friend sitting next to me on the park bench. Well, if if you have that, I'm not calling denigration on that, but I am calling denigration on the idea that everyone needs to have that same experience, uh, because not everyone does. And in fact, nobody really has been explaining this as the norm for a very long time. And the idea of getting to Christian perfectionism, I'd say, honestly, uh, scriptures has a lot to say about that, um, but this isn't primarily a theology course, church history course. Um, uh 19th century Methodism will lead to these a lot of these holiness movements, but I'm sure you can hear from some of this that there's overtones with Quakerism and with Anabaptists and with this concept of uh, restorationism—the idea that the church has just been wrong for all these years, and we're going to finally fix it. Now, I will I will put this forward to you if if you are a part of a movement that looks at all other Christians and say, they're all wrong, but we're right. And we finally figured it out after 1900 years. uh, I'm going to go ahead and say, you're not sitting in the flow of either the visible or the invisible church. You did not just all of a sudden come and figure all this out. But as a reaction, what is attempting to be one of the reactions against modern uh, modernity um, this this appeal to the inner self, this appeal to the inner um emotive side uh of of the uh of the Christian uh will bring out and, and it's born right out of all of these revival movements of the 19th century, the second great awakening and things like this, but it will bring in all sorts of new rules because again, very very literal interpretation of the scriptures, uh in in trying to rebuff. Liberal theology. We're going to go. You know, you're going to tell me you don't believe in the virgin birth. You're going to tell me you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ. Well, I'm going to not only believe in that stuff even harder, but I'm going to go find all the rules in scripture. And I'm going to follow every one of them to a T. No jewelry. No cutting of hair for women. No makeup. Very, very Quakerish. If you look at some of the pictures, um, if you even just do Google image search for the Holiness movements of the 19th century, you're going to see people not dressing like the way, you know. People in the norm of society dressed. If you looked up sermons from the holiness movements, you will you will see a lot of the preaching on the book of Acts. Uh, The idea that the book of Acts is a prescription for how Christians ought to expect uh, the Christian life to work at all points. Uh, That rather than what has been the historical Christian perspective, uh, pretty much unanimous, uh, that the book of Acts is a description of the early church, especially in the apostolic age, not a prescription for the church in all ages. Um, and because a lot of the preaching in the holiness movements will look at the book of acts as a, uh, as a prescription, the book of acts being preached as an application, um, you know, is mandatory. If, if and, and this is where these brand new concepts of in order to prove you're a Christian, you got to speak in tongues. In order to prove you're a Christian, uh, you know, you've got to be able to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then that's a separate work. There's a second act of grace. Uh, you know, so many aspects uh, of, of very unique things that happen in the book of Acts become or try to become the normative life of the church in the... Um, uh, in the holiness movements. Uh, you will get, uh, you will get characters. If you want to read about some of these, um, people are quite important, uh, to look into. One is Charles Fox Parham. Um, uh, Parham is spelled P-A-R-H-A-M. And, um, uh, and also another character that would be interesting to look into, uh, and that would be William J. Seymour, S-E-Y-M-O-U-R. Um, uh, these would be some interesting uh, these would be some interesting ones for you to look into. Um, you know they, they have decent uh, information that easily found online if you want to look into them further and you want to look into the holiness movements a little bit more. Um, you do have to understand that a lot of these holiness movements to look at this um, they are they are right on a lot of things and then they are just kind of a little bit odd on some other stuff. Uh, some of the things, for instance, that they were early to the, uh, early to the party on was even in the United States was unsegregated meetings. Uh, and a lot of this has to do with its history and Methodism, which was one of the first ones, uh, to argue for abolition. And in the late, you know, 1800s, that's not a small thing, uh, to be holding unsegregated meetings, uh, between blacks and whites and, um, and, and specifically, uh, these meetings among, among, uh, poorer people in the U S uh, especially out West and in the South. Um, so you really can't, uh, you know, ignore the setting of this either. So, uh, the, the U S in, in, um, in reconstructionism and, uh, the Jim Crow South and all of these things kind of going on at the same time, um, really kind of shows th- there was, there was a fight against culture in the holiness movements that, um, you know, at least for the, for the eccentricities of the culture of the time were laudable, um, especially for how early a lot of this kind of happened. So um, it does make them shunned by some of the established churches um, because it's just confusing. And established churches with long histories do not look on any normal or any new uh, concept with, with favorability. Uh, established churches tend to hate anything that's different than it really quick. Uh, and take a while to uh, to you know at least to uh, acclimate. <laughs> Let's call it that, right? And so you'll see the the rise of of, um, of what is called uh, Pentecostalism. Now, Pentecostalism uh, again, you can hear the t- the overtones of the Book of Acts. Pentecost, the the idea that what happened at Pentecost should be normative for the life of the church. This kind of concept of the world should be how we expect church to interact and act. Uh, and so we should expect, right, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, that you speak in tongues. We all speak in tongues because everyone on the day of Pentecost spoke in tongues. Um, and while we will have an entire uh, night on Pentecostalism and charismatic theology and things like this, uh, it is important to at least mention the Azusa Street Revival at this point because we're dealing with you know, the, the new century and, uh, and the switch between the 19th century and the 20th century. And that happens in 1906. It's just important to mention here uh, in passing. But we will go into Pentecostalism uh, and some of these characters much more here uh, in the future. But our main focus here is on the fact that these, a lot of these movements in the Holiness Movement, the resurgence in Quakerism, the Restoration Movements, Pentecostalism, a lot of them are just reacting to moder- uh, modernity at the core of who it, what it was, uh, and then it grew into something much more than that uh, later on. Now we come to the biggest reaction to modernity, and that is a full rejection of it. If liberal theology is a full welcoming and open arms of modernism into the church and into theology, then the opposite of that is conservative theology. Uh, or what has been um, what has been uh, called fundamentalism. It's kind of strange, right? When you call someone a fundamentalist, it, it really holds a lot of denigration, even its own title. But again, just as when I'm referring to liberal theology, I do not mean it in its derogatory meaning uh, to call somebody a fundamentalist. I mean, I had I had a teacher in seminary that man he would he would be happier if you called him an unbeliever before you call him a fundamentalist. That was just, don't, you know, don't, don't ever. Yeah. You know, he would never want to be known as one of those. Um, to which I said, I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, it's fine. Well, I'll call you what you will, but, um, but it, it's just interesting to see the reaction and almost a visceral reaction that some people have to the idea of fundamentalists. Um, you know, you say the word and people fill their minds with, with someone they think they know, um you know but i want to use it in the terminology in which it originated and that is the concept of of protecting and holding or conserving the the core doctrines of the christian faith the fundamentals uh and so this was this was the original concept of a lot of this in the early 20th century is that the modernists if we bring in modern theology straight into Christian theology, it's going to destroy everything and it's going to do it piece by piece. Even if it doesn't do it all at once, it's going to be this slow descent towards uh, having absolutely nothing to do with Christianity at all. In fact, there was a cartoon, a very famous cartoon. I have it on my screen, but because I'm I'm technologically illiterate when it comes to streaming uh, and because uh, because podcasts don't have any visual aspect, go look it up somewhere. Uh, It is a cartoon, just a a one panel cartoon called The Descent of the Modernists. And it is is a picture of people walking down this staircase that starts at Christianity. And uh, as you go down the staircase, each stair is a different doctrine that's affected by modernity all the way down to the ground floor, which is atheism. And so I I want you to just kind of see this because it's from this time period and trying to uh, explain how conservative theology is going to resist every single one of these. Uh, And if you see this kind of start, you start at Christianity in this cartoon. And so this is is their vision of themselves, what things they're protecting. It starts at Christianity. It goes to the first step. The Bible is not infallible. And then it goes to the next one. Therefore, man is not made in God's image, and there's no miracles, and then the next steps all deal with Jesus. There's no virgin birth then, which means there's no deity of Christ, which means there's no atonement, which means there's no resurrection, which means agnosticism is really where we sit, and the next step is atheism is where we will end up. Whether you agree with all that or not is irrelevant. Whether I agree with all that or not is irrelevant. This is the view of conservative theology about itself. What it has towards uh, the view of what modernity's threat has towards Christianity is not just an alternate philosophy that maybe we can bring in. What they view it as if you bring this, it is a poison to everything that makes Christianity true. Uh, Charles, you ask a question. Would you consider the onward and upward trend of sinlessness a conservative pietism? I'd say any hyper-introspective holiness would fall under the broad net of pietism. A lot of introspective holiness... Okay, so that's that's a really nerdy question. Uh, (laughs) I like it. Uh, A lot of hyper-introspective holiness would fall under the broad net of pietism, yes. Um, Not all of it, obviously. Uh, You have... You have outside of Pietism, you have people like Luther, you have people like Augustine. There's, there's a, there is a, a large history uh, in Christian thinking about introspective holiness. Um, but I would say definitely, I'd, I think that's an important uh, clarifier on there. Hyper introspective holiness would fall under the broad net of Pietism, yes. Um your first question is would you consider the onward and upward trend to to sinlessness a conservative pietism? Maybe you could rephrase that question a little bit, um, because I don't want to answer it wrong and I think I'm misunderstanding what you're meaning by that. So if you could rephrase that question, that'd be helpful. Um conservativism, at least conservative theology, at its core is a reactionary movement. It is a reaction against liberalism. And so I, I want to say this. Uh, I know a number of people who follow this are much more conservative in theology, and so I want to define, and so am I, and I want to define for us, when we talk about conservative theology, while it is more biblical, its origins historically are not scriptural. Its origins are modernity, same as liberalism. It's just in liberalism, they take modernity, and conservatism is a corrective against liberalism. It's not like you can look at conservative theology and, and then go back into church history and go, hey, you know, where is everyone talking about the reality of miracles? Well, these kind of things were taken for, as as assumed, they were taken presuppositional. So was the virgin birth. So was the deity of Christ, uh, well, at least, you know, as long as we define those well at, at you know, in places like uh, Chalcedon and so forth, um, the atonement and in all of its ways, you know, uh, the penal substitutionary atonement, especially in the Reformation, but throughout the history of the church, there have been people that talk about these things. But conservatism is addressing, uh, or conservative theology is addressing, the challenges of uh, of well, let's see. Hang on a second. So I just read another question. I, I derailed my thought. Sorry about that. Hang on a second. Conservativism is addressing the challenges of liberal theology. Conservative theology is not a sufficient theology in and of itself, because it's not trying to address all of the issues of the Christian worldview, it's just trying to challenge liberalism. Do you see what I mean by this? And so you will see that there is an overcorrection on the conservative side of things, where we only pay attention to those areas that the liberal theologians challenged, and we really do not expand into the other areas that often at all. And so you will find people in the conservative movements that will say forget it throughout all the creeds throughout everything else no creed but the bible no creed but christ you know and and trying to like oversimplify the issues because well let's just get christ right let's just get you know our anthropology right and let's just get that the bible is true and then that's good enough uh, but as you know throughout the history of christianity that's not good enough you you there's so many other things that christian theology addresses here uh, Ken, here's the question. I was re- uh, interestingly, the person on the bottom step of the cartoon you mentioned looks a lot like Freud. That is interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Not going to talk about exactly why that is. Uh, you will also notice if you're looking at that cartoon, the guy at the top is dressed in a beautiful suit. You know, it looks like it's you know just uh, all dressed and pressed. And then you've got uh, kind of a clerical long sleeve outfit. And then the guy at the bottom is wearing. Uh, something that would be much more akin to a scholastic um, professor uh, teaching in a university somewhere, and so none of this was drawn accidentally. That's uh there's there's a lot to be said for that. Um, so here's here's the reality of this: liberalism and conservatism inside denominations. This was not one denomination holds to the conservative stuff, and another denomination holds to the liberal stuff. This was bifurcating inter uh, inside uh, or internal denominational splits, and so you this is this is the kind of the crazy thing about this time period in history is what has happened before is you will get this state church and that state church, and they can go to war against each other, and people really kind of expect that. When we came to the United States, now we go, okay, so all these things that have their history in different state churches or in, you know, separating out from those state churches, whatever, we can live next to each other, just be able to not war between the denominations. But now we find that the war is brought inside the denominations. How do we handle that? How do we handle the idea that inside our denominations, we have people who both hold to the scriptures are true and inspired and others who hold to them as the works of humankind and not inspired or those who hold to miracles and those who don't those who hold that Jesus is born of a virgin miraculously by the Holy spirit and those who don't. And, And it's going to affect everything because when you, when you have a bifurcation like this inside of a single church, the question goes, what is this church's relationship to society? Because on the liberal theologian side of it, you're going to say there's a progressivism to society that we need to join. You know, so whatever, whatever issue of the day, whatever order of the day, whatever is going on in society, that must be our burden as well. But then you'll have on the conservative side that'll go. "Um, My answer is no, because that's the conservative's job to everything the liberal says is no. Uh, And so there's this reactionary back and forth. And the question isn't so much, how do I live next to a Methodist if I'm a Presbyterian and not kill each other? Now it's, I am sitting in the pew next to another Presbyterian who is conservative and I'm liberal. How do we not kill each other? And that's just, that is brand new. Again, brand new concepts, brand new challenges for the church. How do we deal with a lot of this stuff? Uh, let's see here. Charles, you, uh, you rephrased your question to rephrase. The term I'm referring to is called entire sanctification. Yes. Where the Christian will explicitly or most often implicitly achieve a state of sinlessness, this side of heaven. Um, uh, was that trend to sinlessness, a conservative pious? Would you consider that? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, entire sanctification is, is kind of this kind of this same concept of a second work of grace. Um, if your question is what I consider that, um, uh, an upward trend to sinlessness, would I consider that conservative pietism? Oh, I see what you mean. Um, no, the holiness movements were not conservative movements. Um, the holiness movements were not liberal movements. Um, the, cons- the holiness movements, and that's why I'm teaching three different parts of this tonight, you had liberalism was one of the responses to modernity, holiness movements were another, and the conservative movement was yet another one. The holiness movements were neither liberal nor Christian. The holiness movements were not trying to interact with modernity, they were trying to run away from it, but that doesn't make it conservative. Conservativism is this idea of conserving what has been historically handed down, right? That Christ is born of the Virgin, you know, everything from the apostolic creed, the Nicene Creed and all these things. Um, the holiness movements as a whole, and in a lot of places, are restoration movements. They aim to leapfrog all of church history and go back to the early church and see themselves as the uh, as the inheritors of of the first chapters of the book of Acts and see everything else in the interim is wrong. That's what a restoration movement is, and the holiness movements largely were connected to this. And so that's why you will see I have Pentecostal friends, for instance, um, you know who will look at all this stuff and I say, you know, does it bother you at all that you know speaking in tongues is something that just didn't happen in the church in the way that your modern concept of this uh, has it for 1900 years? And they'll look at me and say, no, that doesn't bother me at all. It's a, it's a restoration of, of an age of the spirit uh you know some will answer that way some will answer all sorts of different ways you know we live in a postmodern world so nobody has to be consistent but that is kind of the basic concept is it wasn't liberal and it wasn't conservative it was restoring uh you know and and going all the way back to uh the book of acts and so that's what you'll get people will you know inadvertently not realize that that's what they're doing when they're trying to say things like i just want uh, the church to be like the first century church. I want to, I uh, you know, if we can only get back there, you know, everything would be better. Um, not true, but, you know, a lot of people will think that way, right? Um, so, yeah, I hope that answers that question. So with fundamentalism, back to fundamentalism. Um, if you like lists and you want kind of the five fundamentals of fundamentalism, <laughs> uh, here they are for you if you really like these things. Uh, one would be inerrancy or infallibility, various definitions with that. Basically, view of scripture being high, very high. Uh, So that would be uh, the first of the five. The second would be the truthfulness of miracles, which you may look at that and go like, you know, why? why focus on such a thing? They saw it as one of the very first challenges that would wipe away the importance of Christ. Uh, so miracles was was high on the list. Um, and number three, the substitutionary atonement would be uh, one of the fundamentals of fundamentalism. Uh, that Christ died in our place and paid off our sins in a legal, uh, declared uh, uh, manner. Fourth would be the virgin birth of Christ. Obviously, if he's uh, truly God and truly man, he can't just be a human. Uh, there, that truly God's got to be there somehow. And the virgin birth is how the scriptures say it. So, uh, again, if, if you call, uh, if you, if you're calling on the challenges of, of liberal theology, you're going to have to settle on the virgin birth of reality at some point. Uh, and then the last one would be the resurrection of Christ, which in the extremes of liberal theology is cast out, uh, of the church. Um, now, Here's the thing. So that's the five fundamentals of fundamentalism. Not everyone who calls themselves a fundamentalist holds to all the conservative theological points. Not everyone who's a liberal holds all to the liberal theologians theologians points. This is trying to speak of movements as a whole. Uh, People are inconsistent. Uh, And so you're going to find people that, well, I'm not really comfortable with saying there's no virgin birth, but, uh, you know, uh, Jesus didn't actually do miracles, you know? So you'll find people that have it back and forth. Uh, and so that kind of uh, leads to this, you know, discrepancy between some of these things. Well, that kind of sets up this world for, uh, in Christian theology of trying to address how are we going to look at all of this stuff? Um, the world begins to fall apart in various aspects. Uh, all of this hope of modernity, And this constant progressivism, if it continued into a progressionist uh, mentality into the future, liberal theology may have taken over the airwaves much more significantly than conservative theology ever did. Maybe. But the reality was that modernity took a huge dose of hit uh, from, from reality in the early 20th century. When you had the rise of, uh, of empires and different forms of governance. And you had this seemingly unending source of, of finances and of invention. It looked like the future was bright. There would be people you can read about this uh, throughout, people in the early 1900s that were just writing about the future in the most glowing of terms. We just invented airplanes. We have cars now. The, you know, the, the idea of, of machines bringing into this world the freedom, uh, uh, leisure, and, and the, the idea of, of, of things like the medical world making massive advances every single year. Um, we are moving from the start of the 1800s from bloodletting all the way to the 1900s where we have advanced germ theory and genetics. I mean, that it's it's kind of hard not to have a progressionist concept of the world. In addition to that, look at the, that ins, that incredible progression also followed the the lifespan so far of the American Union. Uh, it, it It seemed like this progression was unending. Uh, you know, it it starts off with the Revolutionary War. Everything goes uh, well with the outcome of that. War of eighteen twelve, everything goes well with the outcome of that. Europe has a huge cholera outbreak in the 1820s which kills an, an astonishing number of people. But in in the 1800s in America it seems we have more states joining all the time, we have gold out west, manifest destiny, this whole uh this whole continent is ours, everything is going well. We've got all this stuff that the uh, that the enlightenment has brought us, all this stuff that the the scientific revolution has brought us the cotton gin. We, we solved the problem of slavery with the Civil War. Now we've got Reconstructionism working. We've got an entire society growing and multiplying. In the early 1900s, the idea of the progressive view of history was an easy sell. And so was progressive theology. This idea that we're not looking to just establish what is true. We're looking to develop it. It's a, it's a living theology. That kind of concept of progressivism was dealt a severe blow at world war one because world war one was where the most progressive, most advanced cultures all went and killed each other throughout history. The church had been largely involved, and the church in its various ways, whether Orthodox or Catholic or Protestant, had been largely involved with the wars of the world. But in World War I, it really wasn't. It played a much more supporting role rather than an influential role. Um, the advances in science that everyone had been touting as the progress of the future, the future coming into the now, All of a sudden, science was leading to the creation of horrific things. Mustard gas, flamethrowers, things that we'd never seen used in war before. I mean, World War I was the last place we saw cavalry. Last place we saw men on horseback and fighting with swords, Uh, at least in the West. Because you have advancements like planes and and early armored uh, ground equipment. Planes where you could fly back and forth, and and have reconnaissance, and then all of a sudden these pilots learned that uh, hey, you know, I if I'm gonna fly above them, maybe I can drop bombs on them, you know, and and literally the first planes, 1914 and 1918, World War One, you know, the first bombers, and I use that terminology very loosely, was just a guy in a in a vellum coated, you know biplane that was you know holding a bomb in one hand while he was flying with the other hand and waiting till he's over the troops and then just literally dropping it. They could see that there was other ones. Maybe if that other plane that's flying the opposite direction of me to go do reconnaissance on my countrymen, maybe if I just, hey, I have a pistol, I can just shoot at him up here. Well, maybe that would work better if I mounted on a machine gun. And all of a sudden, the wheels and the gears of thought towards modernity and the progress of human invention, uh, making life easier, making leisure possible, making our suffering less. All of a sudden, we found ourselves turning our invention to make each other perish in worse ways. You can't hold back the... the... Um, optimists view though there was many who looked at the world uh, the first World War as the Great War meaning significant but soon progressed to the idea that it's the war to end all wars we just need to get it out of our system It was the last that we were going to do all of this because the progress of science would win Even if we're misusing science in a way to destroy one another in a way that nobody's ever seen before, maybe progress will win out. And you can see this hope, the war to end all wars. You can hear the theological expressions in that. A lot of this forced a lot of sections of the church to grow up very quickly. What does the gospel do to culture is a very important question. We still struggle with this question. Not what ought the gospel do to a culture. What does it actually do to a culture? That's a huge question and something that was challenged in the church during World War I. We'll talk about that in a little later on. But this aspect of how World War I challenged the struggle of, of the culture directly into the church's lap. And a lot in the church started looking at this all of a sudden through more nationalistic eyes. Asking the eternal question during war, which side is God on? When I say an eternal question, I mean one that goes without answering uh, most of the time. But it's an old question, isn't it? You look back to Joshua and he comes to the commander of the Lord's armies, the pre-incarnate Christ there, and asking him, right? Are you for us or for our enemies? And what was God's response? Neither. Neither. But as a commander of the Lord's host, as captain of the Lord's armies, I have now come. But when you're living in the middle of something as horrific as World War I, it's very difficult to keep faith. And in the middle of people's despair will come charlatans every time. When people are desperate, that's when they open themselves up to be taken advantage of and you will see in world war 1 where the entanglement of the state and the usage of theology to how can i say it nicely manipulate people the government's use of biblical themes as propaganda for instance if you doubt about this just go look up the angel of uh, the angels of mons the angels of Mons, M-O-N-S. The use of, of biblical themes as propaganda, the idea that God is secretly for us and now we're making it known to you. Um, you know We can settle the question. The government can settle the question of which side is God on. Uh, that faith and state entanglement uh, led to a great deal of hatred uh, towards, uh, towards or a great deal of mistrust towards authorities, uh, a great deal of mistrust towards anything that stank of the state uh, on both sides. But I will say this, one of the effects of this uh, at, towards the end of World War I was because a great deal of liberal theology was coming out of Germany at the time, uh, a hatred towards German higher criticism and even Germans as a people uh, began to be part of the American concept and welcomed straight into the church. The idea of this level of propaganda actually worked to a lot of people. If, if the government can solve for us by telling us about angels that are defending our good boys overseas, uh, and and they can use stories like this to fabricate, um, uh, uh, almost a patriotic pietism. Uh, you can you can see the concept welling in people's minds. Maybe good Christians ought to enlist. If you're going to be a good Christian, maybe that's your relationship to your culture. In fact, that certainly would be, right? Because being a good Christian will lead one to being a good American well, it's not far of a jump to say on the other side, then that being a good American means it leads you to being a good Christian. There is uh, a great deal of this that people tend to forget in history. Um, For instance, uh, in, in the middle of all of this, uh, you know, for we forget kind of our own history pretty quick sometimes. So uh, just a little bit of history on this, this, uh, our Pledge of Allegiance in the United States. Um, most of us are very familiar with it, say it in school all the time. But that's not the original one from this time period. The original one from this time period was an unofficial one. Um, and then it became uh, official a little bit later on in a different format. But what a lot of people were having as as this kind of uh, concept is that they pledged themselves not to a flag specifically, but to read the the original uh, Pledge of Allegiance from 1887 to 1923 will kind of show it to you a bit. Uh, From 1887 to 1923, the Pledge of Allegiance for most people would have been, we give our heads and hearts to God and our country, one country, one language, one flag, unquote. Now the changes in 1906, and there are some parallels uh, in some of this. Was I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands? I pledge my head and my heart to God and my country. One country, one language, and one flag. After the close of World War One, uh, Congress accepted a different version of it um, that anyone who is American would under, would would recognize. Um, It it is the current one, but without the words under God, that was added during World War II. But this idea of my flag, my country, this country, my God, one language, one flag, This, this idea of belongingness, this idea of of <clears throat> of side-by-side, side, I serve God and country. Even if that means my view of God is completely different than the guy I'm fighting next to, we're both Americans, we both serve God, and we both probably have very different concept about who God is. But we'll pray together before we go and defeat those whom God is obviously against, even if we don't agree on everything. It's one of these ways that American Christians, or, or Americans... Um, to probably put it um, a more specific way, tried to wrestle with this idea of, of how is it we live next to one another, even if we disagree on the uh, core tenets of Christianity. And so you'll get a very laissez-faire attitude towards theology, towards being specific about theology. Um, after World War I, there is a great deal of backfire towards a lot of the propaganda that went on during the time of of the war Um, and then a desire to find meaning in something other than the church or the state. And if we were in just a straight up American history course, we would talk about the Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression and all sorts of other stuff that came next. Um, But that would be one of the places where modernity took an enormous uh, amount of damage was in World War I. World War II will do it again. And then the onslaught of postmodernity in the 60s and 70s all the way up to today um, is putting modernity to death, actually, uh, and how the church responds to post-modernity. And this is one of the reasons why I teach uh, the church's reactions to modernity. I don't know that there was any great good at reactions to modernity, uh, and we're living in yet another part of the church's history where we're going to have to react to post-modernity now, and we're not prepared to do it well. And I'm quite concerned about how we're going to do it. It's just going to be reactionary uh, rather than looking forward to the future as God would have. Um, we'll see. Um, but until then, stay faithful. Uh, and I encourage you to, uh, to look to the future with, uh, with the hope of Christ, uh, regardless of what comes down the pike. And let's face it, as faithfully as we can. Lord's blessings to you all. A uh, little bit of housekeeping here at the end. Um, we will not be having church history class for the next two Wednesdays. Um, I'll I'll post a reminder of that here on uh, here on the uh, the channel here on YouTube, and but I'll remind you all over the podcast as well. Here, um, we uh, I am spending the next two weeks in intensive dissertation writing, uh, and I cannot afford. <clears throat> excuse me, I cannot afford the focus uh, that this class takes. Believe it or not, I don't teach this class off the top of my head. It takes a lot of preparation every week, um, and I don't have the time the next couple of weeks. I'm going to be working in the Gospel of Matthew, so if you could be praying for me about that, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, I work very well in good, huge chunks like that. Um, hopefully be able to uh, to work on a, a great deal of it and, and leapfrog where I am currently at which is an unacceptable location (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. Lord's blessings to you all. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ken, for your encouragement here. Great one tonight. Thanks, Tim. You're very much welcome. My honor. And thank you guys all. Thank you, Mary.